Welcome, and thank you for joining Detroit Church's Greatest Adventure Bible Study Podcast, where we take a moment to get a little deeper into biblical understanding and ask those burning questions through engagement, teaching, facilitated discussion, and group interaction. You are more than welcome to follow along with us through this journey at DetroitChurch.com backslash trending and click on the Greatest Adventure Bible Study link. If you were with us last week, you know we didn't quite get all the way through the conclusion of chapter one. And so I, I want to pick up just a couple of nuggets from chapter one. Uh, so if you got your Bible, turn with me. Galatians chapter one. Uh, we left off last week around verse 17 or so. Paul telling us his story, uh, you know, in particular, his journey of faith and ministry. And uh, when we left off, he had um, was talking about how this apostolic ministry came to him, not by man, how this this great word concerning the gospel came to him, not by a man or institution, but by revelation. We talked a little bit, a lot about that last week. Uh, in verse 17, he says, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again into Damascus. And there are lots of questions that uh, came to my mind uh, as I read those verses in verse 18, then after three years, right? I'm the kind of person that when you jump three years in time in one verse, I, my, my question is, what are you doing during those three years? And how come you didn't tell us? The nerve of you, 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 you know, to not give us a blow-by-blow of your life, right? He says he went up to Jerusalem to visit with Cephas or Peter and remained with him 15 days, saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Uh, he says a couple of interesting things. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then he went into regions of Syria, Cilicia, and uh, he was still an unknown, uh, unknown person in the churches of Judea that were in Christ. So um, they were only hearing it said, he says, that he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me, Paul says. Now, I, again, I just want to tune in to a couple of key points in some of those verses. Uh, as we go back to verse 19, all right, and that's kind of where we'll pick it up. Now, I didn't see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, right? Um, there were all the questions that came before. What were you doing and how long were you there and what were you doing while you were over there? Uh, we don't get the answers to uh, any of those questions. Paul doesn't bother to share with us what he was doing in Arabia. You, you, you know, there is certainly speculation, conjecture, from people smarter than me about what was going on uh, there. And we can fill in, you know, very loosely some of those cracks. But um, as we think about verses 19 through 25, uh, we acknowledge, first of all, that it doesn't answer our questions. In fact, all of those verses, uh, they only answer one question. What was Paul doing when he went to Damascus? Well, he, he, we know he did some preaching. All right, that, that's what we know for sure. All right, he tells us, that he did some preaching while he was there, all right? And, and we can uh, correctly infer that these things happened after his conversion and before he went back to Jerusalem. Whether that's a 14-year period or a 17-year period is up for much discussion, all right? Debate even amongst Bible scholars, right? Uh, in fact, if you would like to 
get involved in that discussion slash debate. Uh, when you get home, uh, Google the North Galilean theory versus the South Galilean theory. Uh, you, you know, Galatian, not Galilean. Uh, the North Galatian theory and the South Galatian theory. Uh, it makes really interesting reading. If you want to just kind of geek out uh, and do it, you know, but be careful when you geek out. Uh, I don't suggest you geek out for geekness sake, if that is a word. Uh, let it be born of a search to answer a legitimate question that you're really trying to pose to the text. All right. Uh, that will help guide you because there are lots of off ramps to bunny trails uh, that will get you lost out there. I don't know if you're a Lord of the Rings fan like me, but uh, I believe it was in the first Lord of the Rings and they were going into this dark forest and Gandalf said, whatever you do, just make sure you stay on the path. All right. Because if you get off the path, uh, you'll be lost forever. Right. And now those are prophetic words because a lot of us have entered the Bible with a singular question. It's like, oh, look at that, you know, over there. And, and then when you're over there, you say, oh, look at that. And then you're over there and your question was way over there. Right. And so uh, if you're not careful, you never make it back to that central question that sent you on your quest to begin with. That takes a bit of biblical discipline uh, to stay focused on what you were looking for. So I want to encourage you towards that end. Now, um, why I chose to dive in back here is not because of all those theories, right? <clears throat> I chose to dive back in here because what we're experiencing in this piece of the text is what happens when the Bible doesn't tell us all we want to know. Uh, I hate to tell you this, but your Bible will not tell you everything you want to know. Uh, your Bible will tell you everything you need to know, but not nearly everything you want to know. All right. And so the question that someone might ask me is, you know, Pastor, Man, what do we do as Bible students when we bump into a mystery? Right. When something is unknown to us and perhaps even unknowable. And that's why I wanted to pop back in here, because I think it's a great place to illustrate a principle of study. All right. And hopefully uh, that's what I'm doing in the in the background with you guys is not only taking us through Galatians, but hopefully I'm trying to model proper Bible study methodology uh, for you guys so that as you go home and study, you're picking up skills on how to, to take your study to the next level, uh, to make your study richer, because I don't want you to just be running around quoting me, right? You, you know, because it'll be like Joseph, all right? They, they knew, yeah, there arose a pharaoh who didn't know Joseph, and they said, Joseph who? You know, because you used to be able to drop his name. Hey, you know, me and Joseph, we was cool, you know. Ain't no problem. Come on in. You and Joseph, cool. But, you know, when, when the Pharaoh who knew not Joseph says, I don't know no Joseph, you can't get in. You know, and you're going to bump into somebody that when you say Pastor Flynn said, and they say, who is that? You, you know, and you run into your whole little list of who I am, and they still say, who is that? You better, you better be able to come stronger than just me, all right? And so I'm not preparing you guys to quote me, right? I want you to be able to quote your scriptures. And so... We jump off tonight with that question. What do we do when we bump into a mystery? Two steps So when you bump into a biblical mystery. Two steps, right? Jot this down if you need to. Step number one, do all you can practically and spiritually to solve it, right? Uh, employ every tool at your disposal. Uh, chief among them, prayer. All right? You know, the Bible is a unique book that, in that we get to consult with the author, right? Uh, and so... You, you know, do learn all the study techniques and, you know, get all of the, the, the language tools and all the commentaries that you can afford and that your mind can handle, right? You do all of that 
Uh, that's all the practical stuff and some of the spiritual stuff that you do when you run into a biblical mystery. Do your very best to solve it. And when you've exhausted all of that, then you do step two, which is to accept the fact that it falls into the category of something that God does not want you to know, right? A much tougher step is to accept when the information is just not there. Now, step two is an important step, and it's what I call the break glass in case of emergency step, all right? Turn to your Bibles, Deuteronomy 29, 29. Right? Deuteronomy 29, 29. All right, I'm going to give you the Flynn paraphrase uh, on this one. I'll start with the Bible before I paraphrase it. All right? Uh, your Bible probably says something like this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. The, the, the things that he's given us are for us and our children. All the other stuff is none of your business. That's the Flynn translation paraphrase. All right? Uh, contrary to popular belief, God does not have to explain to us everything nor is he uh, out to try to do so, right? Uh, now, don't run to this verse as soon as you don't know something. This is not the verse to run to 10 minutes after you tried to look in on Google, you, you know, to, to get your Bible answered right quick, you know, or you ran into over to, you know, uh, uh, Elder, uh, my Elder uh, Kaufman over here, and he didn't know the answer, so you said, well, he don't know, then it must not be in there. You asked Meg and you know, and Moody didn't know the answer either, right? And so you said, well, it must be a secret thing. Not necessarily true. All, right? All of us reserve the right to tell you uh, we don't know and we haven't been able to figure that out, uh, you, you know. But that doesn't mean that it's not figurable outable, all right, if I could use that phrase, all right? It may just be that we haven't studied deeply enough. But after some time, you know, and after you've investigated thoroughly, you may accept the fact that this might be one of those questions that God is not answering in the text, all right? And I'll have to be okay with that. Are you okay with that? It's okay to say we're okay with that. Okay, great, great, great. So we bumped into that. Now, as we continue on in our story, a uh, couple other things here I want to highlight before we get out of chapter one and go into chapter two. <clears throat> all right, uh, in verse 20, Paul says, and it's a, it's a parenthetical statement in the ESV, and what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie, right? This is an interesting verse. It's a really interesting verse. Um, the question that I have as I look at this verse is, is Paul doing what James tells us not to do? Turn to James chapter 5, verse 12. James chapter 5, verse 12, right quick. Uh, when you get there, uh, Meg, you got the mic on you? Who got the mic? All right. So when you get there, would you read that for us? James chapter 5, verse 12. James uh, chapter 5, verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. All right. So there's uh, James telling us uh, what not to do. It's, that's prescriptive. It's not descriptive, all right? He gives us a, a flat-out command. Paul says to the people he's writing at the Church of Galatia, in what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Is Paul doing what James told us not to do? What say you? Anybody? You don't even need the mic for this one. Okay, we'll take a poll. If you think the answer is yes, that Paul is, in fact, doing what James has told us not to do, raise your hand. 
If you think the answer is no, Paul is not doing what James has told us not to do. Raise your hand. Okay, if you have no clue, because everybody didn't vote. Raise your hand. I respect the young man. He says, I have no clue. Now, I'm interested. Uh, Meg, you raise your hand for no, right? I'm interested to hear uh, your interpretation of what Paul is doing and how that does not fly in the face of what James just told us not to do. To me, I'm like, I don't know if this is an apples to apples thing. Okay. What, what you've been taking us through with Galatians is obviously there's, there's these agitators, there's, there's these people preaching a, a gospel that's not what Paul had preached. And so he's, he's spending a lot of time um, saying, you know, hey, I need, I need to make, this is a, a specific situation where I need to make a point here. Right. That, that I've, that this is what I did. I was three years there, then I was over here, and then I was with Peter, and nothing, um, kind of came in to sort of manipulate the gospel that I preached to you. Right. And, and I'm telling you the truth, right? So I think he's, it's just like an emphatic statement, uh, not as much um, him saying, you know. I swear to God. Yeah. That I'm telling you the truth. Yeah, I mean, I, let's see. Doesn't he say that, though? No. He, he invokes. Before God, I do not lie. Right. Now, we could contemporize this language a little bit. And if we contemporize this language a little, is Paul saying, I swear to God, I'm telling the truth. All right, my mother wants to raise her hand there. All right. I believe what Paul is saying before God. Mm -hmm. God is my witness. As God is my witness, right? That I'm telling you the truth. Okay, let's say I agree with you. Is that not you invoking God as a witness to what you are saying, thus... You are swearing to God. Well, there are others in the Bible that use God as their witness. No, I have no disagreement, but let's make sure we are back at the central question. The central question was, is Paul telling no. us, is Paul doing what James told us not to do? All right. Is Paul doing? Now, uh, I, I, I understand your attention, right? And y'all always thinking I'm trying to trap y'all, right? I am not trying to, I am not trying to trap y'all, right? Uh, but I understand the tension. Is this one of those places where we see what some would call an apparent contradiction in the text, right? Once again, the slugfest between Paul and James, you know, the traditional one, grace and works, right? We, we've dealt with that. Now we got James saying, don't make no promises, don't swear to God. No, don't make any kind of an oath. Just let your yes be yes, your no be no. Paul's saying, listen, I'm telling you the truth before God, right? Uh, now, now, so y'all trying to exonerate Paul. I'm not trying to implicate Paul, all right? We are exploring the text. And the text we go where the text takes us. To, too many X's in my language there. We go where the text takes us, right? Um, now, I saw a couple of other hands there. Sister Kim? You leave it alone. Uh, Eli, oh, okay. Baby girl. Uh, you got to wait. Get the mic. Is he not saying that God is present? Is he not saying before God, as in, I wouldn't lie to you in God's presence? Yeah, I, I can stipulate that, right? That but, 
so let me ask y'all a question. If you bring God or your mama or your grandmama into your declarative statement, are you not making an oath based on what you would say is something that you hold sacred? Whether that's my mama, my uncle's grave, my dog, whatever you swear on, right, that people will swear on, you're using that object to add validity to your statement, are you not? Only reason I don't get on God from this Uh is because the entire chapter is sort of referring to God's personal invitation to him to come and do the work. I agree, but we have transitioned because Paul transitions and makes this statement. I'm not lying to you guys. I agree with everything y'all said. He is trying to... uh, demonstrate the sincerity and the veracity of his words to this audience that he's writing to. We got a question over here uh, with Sister Aaron here. He's doing all the stuff y'all said he's doing, and yet y'all are refusing to engage me. (laughs) All right, do I have a room full of chickens? Uh, But that's all right. Sister Aaron, take the last swing at it. So I was reading, um, just for clarity, in a different translation. Right, right. And it reads... Now in what I am writing to you, I assure you as if I were standing before God that I am not lying. Mm-hmm. So when mm. I read that, mm-hmm. I, I um, envision a person, yes, standing before God, but more than that, that God knows. Right. God knows the intentions of the heart. Yes, ma'am. So he, I see it as he appealing to the all-knowing nature of who God is. Right, right. That y'all he knows walking the heavy, truth. Y'all deep tonight. That he uh-huh. knows the truth. I'm saying it, but God knows the truth. Uh-huh. So I, I, I believe that he's appealing to that, that all-knowing nature of God when he's saying that. Okay, okay. And let's just say I agree with you. Does Paul need to say all that to his audience for him to be telling the truth? Absolutely not. But he says it anyway. So then we would have to ask the question, Paul, why are you saying this to them? Of what purpose? If this verse was not there, none of us would be wondering. I wonder if Paul is telling the truth. All right, if you could erase this verse in the Bible, none of us would be having this question, right? We wouldn't be questioning the accuracy or the legitimacy of it, right? Yeah, we've never, ever seen it anywhere else in any other Pauline writings where he needs to authenticate what he says with a statement like this, right? Now, uh, I don't want to belabor it, but I think it was a good discussion. I am saying, and you are free to disagree with me as you all have. I don't mind standing by myself, and I'm sure Megan's going to be calling me later, right? Uh, uh, Paul is doing, is doing, I'm claiming, what James and Jesus tell us not to do But this is not a contradiction, is my claim. That's where you want to say, hold on, Pastor, how can you say that, right? Well, in fact, Jesus took an oath in court, Matthew 26, 63. Jot it down, we won't go there and take a look at it, right? And there are many other places in Scripture where an oath was uh, taken and it was blessed by God. For example, Genesis 21, 24, Deuteronomy 6, 13. Even God himself, God the Father himself, took an oath. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 13. So what do we make of it? What are we to make of it? Well, what we're to make of it is that there are good oaths to be taken and bad oaths to be avoided. Right? That's what we're to make of it. 
Uh, good O's include, according to Dr. Norman Geisler, true ones, true O's. So if you're telling the truth, it's okay to invoke the presence of God, uh, however you're doing it, because you're telling the truth. God is a God of truth. All right. Not a problem there. Uh, Dr. Geisler would say O's to do good, sacred ones, meaningful ones, serious ones, and yes, judicial ones. Right. Because if I got to go sit in court and they say, put your hand on the Bible. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth? So help you, God. And am I disobeying James when I do that? Right. Or am I, you know, making Paul and James square off again? Paul says, obey those that have the rule over you. Obey the civic authorities, James says. So we have to make sure we have a holistic understanding of what James is saying when he tells us not to make these O's. He's telling us, uh, don't, don't be frivolous with this thing. Let your yea be yea. I mean, certainly he's not telling us that we need to be integrous people. We know we have to be, if we're going to be people who follow Christ, we have to be people who do not lie, all right, and, and tell the truth. And so uh, over and over again, we see uh, such uh, statements for us to, uh, to do that. You know, Paul says, you know, stop lying, stop stealing, get a job. You, you know, all those kind of things that you can, you can help somebody, right? Uh, now, those are good oaths. Bad oaths include false ones, oaths to do evil, profane ones. That's what gets us in a lot of trouble, right? Not profane in the sense of I'm using profanity, but just vain. You, you know, uh, you know, if I told you the lions won, I swear to God they did. That's a profane, you know, first of all, you're not going to believe me. Secondly, you, you know, so I got to swear to God so you, to make you believe me. And then when you, that would be a profane oath, right? You, you know, I'm just, that's, that's like, why, why? That's, that's idle speech, right? Uh, what else do we got there? Profane ones, vain, vain ones, frivolous ones, secret ones, secret ones. And I won't go into all that, but there are secret organizations that have you pledge secret oaths, all right, that are not in public view, right? Uh, these, Paul says this to the whole church at Galatia. Right. So this is a public uh, oath that he is making in this. He appeals to the Old Testament tradition to affirm and confirm the legitimacy of his claims. You may remember in the Old Testament, the verbiage went like this. The Lord judge between me and thee in this matter. Right. Whatever it is. And so I'm invoking the presence of God to be a third party to this thing that we're getting into. Right. Uh, and I'm okay with that because I know that I'm coming to you legitimately. Uh, I'm coming to you with integrity, right? So I can do that because we know Old Testament, God uh, frowned upon using his name. He still does in the New Testament, but we see more dire uh, consequences for it, you know, in the Old Testament. So I wanted to, to hit that really quickly. I don't know if that was really quickly because y'all wanted to all say no and convince me otherwise. But that's my argument, all right? So I lay that before you for your consideration. Go home, study it for yourself. Uh, hit me up with an email. Come back, you know? I'm, I'm open to discussion on that, but uh, I wanted to just kind of really hit that. Now, I think we can go on into uh, the next chapter, I think. Well, I do want to, verse 24 in chapter 1, Paul ends it with a very simple verse, Right? Uh, so simple, in fact, that some of us probably blow right by it. He says, after he did all this, he says, and they glorified God because of me, right? 
Now, Paul has just laid out an impressive journey that covers somewhere between 14 and 17 years of his life. All right. Uh, a lot that he left out, but he included a lot of preaching and traveling and, and spreading the gospel and setting up uh, ministries and all of that. He just laid all of that out. Uh, he laid out persecution and all of these kinds of things. Um, you know, chiefly, he lays out his testimony at being one who had formerly tried to destroy the church, but now being one who is a, um, a paragon, one who is a, what's that thing we call Paul Revere? A, um, a herald, yes, all right, of the gospel, right? Uh, and he says, in sharing that testimony, they glorified God because of me. Right. Because they knew who I was. Perhaps they had friends or relatives who experienced me doing what I did. And now I'm this herald of the gospel and they glorified God. Not that they said, way to go, Paul. So glad you got cleaned up. So glad you're on the right team. Now, Paul it says they they glorified God. Notice they didn't just celebrate. They didn't rejoice that their terrorizer was gone. They glorified God. The question that I would have left you with to wrap up chapter one is what if your worst enemy got saved? Right, right. That's what I wanted to leave you with last week. I give it to you in the middle now. What if your worst enemy got saved? Because we live in a culture that doesn't know what to do when my enemies are no longer my enemies. I'm so used to villainizing a person and keeping them stuck in the picture that I have painted of them, I don't know what to do, right? It's so easy. We get on, we, you know, they do wrong, they do us wrong, me wrong, you wrong. We, you know, we blast them out on social media. It goes viral, you know, and now they're forever stuck in that space until somehow they're not, right? Can you imagine if Paul lived in our day and he was this person who was a persecutor of Christians, a killer of Christians with social media and all that. We got the video of Paul at Stevens stoning, you know, saying, yeah, get him. Or perhaps even throwing a rock. We got the video right there. And we got all the, the whole chatter of Internet traffic, you know, all about who Saul was. And now we read Saul became a Christian. Saul started a ministry. Saul's preaching now. You know, how do you feel? Because I know how I feel with somebody you knew that was uh, infamous all of a sudden, they on TBN or, you know, now they're they a preacher. And, you, you know, now if we're honest, are we at home glorifying God when we hear that so-and-so went to jail and, be, you know, got saved and came out and now they're, they're a preacher now? Are, are we saying, way to go, Jesus, you, got, you saved another one? Or are we doing something less, less than, than that? You, you know? Now, that's something. I'm gonna, I mean, you know, studies show the people who come to Bible study are the most spiritual people in the church. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, you know, that, that's like 10% of the population, right? And, and so here we are, these skeptical people. Like, you know, if I told you for real, you know, Donald Trump got saved and, and we, I, I was there at his baptism. I saw it myself and, you know, and all that. And well, you'd be like, I don't know, Pastor Flynn. You, you know, you sure it was him. You, you know, <laughs> and, you know, and, and he didn't say, you know, one Corinthians. He said first Corinthians and, and, and you know, and all of the stuff. And, and you, you, you know, uh, we, you know, we might be saying, well, let's put him on Christian probation for like 90 days so all of us can really see, you, you, you know, how this thing goes down because we're just not sure, right? It's interesting that that's not what we see here, right? That, that you know, these people just praise God that their worst enemy had gotten saved. 
You know, how, how will we respond? Have, have we been so busy asking God to get them in vengeance that we've forgotten his mission is to save the lost, including the person who terrorizes us? You, you know, those are just some thoughts I wanted to leave you with from chapter one to kind of close up chapter one. You know, would we glorify God? Well, you go home, ponder on that, pray on that, because we got to go into chapter two. Let's uh, go in and let's read those real quick. Let's read those verses. And then we'll get as far as we can. We got about an hour, so let's do it. All right. Uh, he opens up chapter one. Then after 14 years. So we get this another giant. Where am I? Galatians chapter two. Well, you know, we, okay, my bad. Whatever I said. All right, Galatians chapter 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. I want to stop there. As if we get that far, it will be mission accomplished on tonight, even though I want to get to verse 10. So, um, Paul does this major leap in time again as he continues telling his story to the Galatian believers. And as he does so, he introduces a couple of new companions. This is the first time we've seen these new companions. Now, as we think about verse 1, there's only one thing by way of vocabulary to see in this verse, and I'll cover it in verse 2 because Paul mentions it again, all right? Uh, So, just sit tight for that. What I will do with respect to verse one is ask two opening questions for you guys. We'll open the floor up that I believe this verse prompts. The first question is what happened during the 14 year gap? And the second one is who are your traveling companions in the work God has called you to in this season? Now, before I ask you guys any of that, because I don't want us to just be speculating and all of that. In fact, I won't even ask you to speculate on what he was doing in the 14 year gap. Right. I'll handle the first one. The last time we were together, or just a few minutes ago, Paul mentioned, no, the last time, that he spent 15 days in Jerusalem, after which he went back north to Syria and Cilicia. All right, we saw that last week, right? If you weren't with us, make sure you check it out on the podcast, uh, Detroit Church Podcast, uh, when the Bible study, it's already up for the first two weeks. Anyway, where he ended up with, where he ended up at, rather, is in Antioch, in Syria, right? And uh, was there for a significant period of time prior to some false teachers coming there and getting into such an epic debate with Paul and Barnabas that the matter had to be settled by going back to Jerusalem to seek the guidance of the apostles and the elders. In between this time, all right, because we got a major gap in time there, Paul went on his missionary journeys, all right? That's what's happening during this 14 years, all of Paul's travels, right? He went on these missionary journeys, three, four, depending on how you want to count it. All right? Your homework, should you decide to accept it, all right, is to go home between now and next week and read Acts chapter 13, 14, and 15, right? That way you can know 
Paul's journeys. We see Paul's journeys chronicled in Acts chapters 13, 14, and 15, right? And that will put you right in between the end of Galatians chapter 1 and the beginning of Galatians chapter 2. Reading those three chapters, all right? So hopefully you will accept that homework assignment. That'll give you all your missing details. Now, as to the second question, I think it's important for us to remember that while there are moments of solitude, all right, because some of you guys are like almost Christian mystics. You guys are deep people. You got your prayer closets, your, your war room. You, you know, you have no problem waking up and stealing away and just going and be in the presence of God for hours. Uh, and it's a wonderful thing. Not here to charge you about, about that. However, what I will say is that there are moments of solitude in a believer's walk. Times of prayer, meditation, seeking God. While all that's true, most of the journey is to be done in community with people who will help us with the work and will hold us accountable to do the standards set by God, right? Most of it, I would argue. Now, again, you know, you look at Jesus. He got up early in the morning, spent, you know, stole away time with the Father, right? We don't have the, the, the watch on Jesus. You know, he did it from 6 to 9, then from 9 to 12, you know, he was over here, he broke for lunch, and then he kept it going. He worked overtime till 8, and that's how you Christians run it, right? We don't get a, a, a proscriptive or prescriptive statement from the Lord or from the apostles on how we should chart our days, all right? Some of us wish that we did. It would make life simpler. Some of us are glad that it doesn't because my wife's a, a morning dove and I'm a night owl, right? You, you know, she up praying at 4 in the morning. I try to pray at six. I'm talking in tongues and I don't even have a gift. So, you know, so, so the Lord don't know what I'm saying and I don't know what I'm saying. You, you know, I got to start over. Like, I'm sorry, Lord. I fell asleep in the middle of my prayer. Right, right. You know, trying to do that. Now, you know, now we switch gears and I say, hey, let's pray at 1130 at night. I'm crisp. My mind's working great. You know, I can hear from God at 1130 at night. She like, don't talk to me after eight o'clock. I don't want to talk about nothing. The things of God, nothing, you, you know. Uh, I don't even want to think. So I'm glad that the Bible leaves us some flexibility with regards to how he's made us to be able to do these things. I think the ingredients ought to be there, but how we navigate those ingredients will, be, will vary from person to person. However, what I would venture to say is that most of us don't have nearly the amount of accountability in our lives via fellow saints that we need to have. A lot of us get out there and get ourselves in trouble because we've been going it alone too much, right? Samuel L. Jackson frequently asked, I know you didn't think you would ever hear me say that in a Bible study. He frequently asked the question, what's in your wallet? I'm asking you, who's on your team, right? Who's on your team, right? You, you know, if, if you, who you got that knows you so well, they can look at you and call you out when you and they, you know, everybody, you know, we all had the experience. You say, hey, how you doing? They, somebody says, I'm all right. You know, and maybe we take them in, you know, we take, oh, I'm so glad, you know, I'm running away. I'm, you say, you're all right, great. <laughs> you know, I ain't got to ask no further questions, you know, but you got that person in your life that you can say, I'm all right. And they say, stop lying. You know, I saw you as soon as you walked in. I knew you wasn't all right, right, you, you, you know. Uh, and you, do you have that person in your life? Do you have that person that can say, you know, uh, I saw what you had on social media and that was out of, you was out of pocket. You, you, you know, who could call you out on stuff like that? Because we're going to see in Paul's life 
that he had no problem calling another apostle out and, and he had no problem. Well, he, he got called out, you know, on, on his stuff. So he had people in his life. Who, who helps keep your train on the tracks? Or are we all so spiritual? I'm just going to hear from God. He's going to let me know when the course correct. How's that been working out for you? All right. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't, but usually by the time God has to swing in and, and course correct you, the train has already left the tracks, right? Because God started with a whisper. He might have sent that person to you as just a flashing yellow light. Hey, chill out. You, you, you know, before, because when God got to speak and you got to, and he's speaking loudly, you in trouble, right? You, you know, so he started with the still small voice and then he sent that person to you or that, those persons, right, to help get the train back on the tracks. We, we need that. I don't care how spiritual you are, how spiritual I think I am. We all need that level of accountability and that happens in community, right? And so we want to make sure that we are uh, engaged like that. Now, that's my sermon. Uh, we got to move on to verse two. All right. Um, by the time we get to verse five, then I will open up the floor for questions. Uh, but I want to get to verse five because this is uh, some pretty, it's all together. All right. A lot of these verses uh, in, you know, this, this thought is all together. So we go into verse two. He says, I went up because of a revelation and set before them though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, uh, he says right off the bat, I went up, all right? And this is the phrase that I didn't deal with in verse one that I am going to deal with in verse two because he said it the second time. So if I was to ask you American Christians uh, without looking at anything, what direction Paul is traveling when he says, I went up, what would you say? All right, my brother says north. How many raise your hand and say he's traveling north? All right, all right, quite a, quite a few of y'all say. All right, so you're doing just like that. So what you saying? Up to Jerusalem. Oh, 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 we don't know what you're saying right now, Ma. Oh, we're going to let you work it out. Now, uh, if you have your little booklets, all right, pull them out right quick. Uh, if you open it straight to the middle, you will see a map. All right, of uh, the area in which Paul traveled. Now, unfortunately, I wanted to give you guys more maps. Jerusalem is not on here. Jerusalem would be, you see that yellow Syria? All right, you go to the bottom of your page, straight down, straight down from that yellow, that pink corner of Syria, you will get to Jerusalem, right? Uh, so Paul is in Antioch when they find him. Everybody see Antioch? All right. And he says, we went up to Jerusalem. So, does anybody see Jerusalem on this map? All right, because Jerusalem is not north of Antioch. Jerusalem is south of Antioch. As American Christians, uh, when, we, when we hear the phrase up, we automatically think north. All right? Um, so, we're not thinking, the Bible doesn't typically speak directionally like that uh, with respect to Jerusalem. It's always speaking about elevation is the word you were looking for, Mother. All right? It's always speaking about elevation. Jerusalem is like Denver for us. All right? Denver's called the Mile High City. All right? It's high. Detroit is actually below sea level. So we go up everywhere we go. Right? When you leave the city, you go up. Right? So uh, they're giving elevation terms, not directional terms, when he says we went up to Jerusalem. So they're traveling south to go higher. Oh, in elevation. You guys with me? 
All right. So I need you to remember that because that's a frequent feature in your Bible. All right. Uh, knowing a little bit of biblical geography will, will help you out greatly in just making sure you understand the text uh, a little bit better. Now, so he says, I went up because of a revelation. We've seen this word revelation before. It's a disclosure of truth, instruction concerning divine things before unknown, especially those relating to Christian salvation, right? Given by God himself or by the ascended Christ, especially through the operation of the Holy Spirit. So this is to be distinguished from other methods of instruction. Paul, is all, he's, he's gone through painstaking efforts. This is the second time he's emphasized the fact that I didn't get this from school. I didn't get this from an institution. I didn't get this from a mentor or a person. I got this by revelation from God himself, all right, from Jesus himself. So, again, commentators speculate that uh, Paul got took to school in this three-year to 17-year period when he's off the scene, probably before he goes on his missionary journeys. So it's really this three years, this dark three years that we don't know what's going on with Paul, that, that th all of this revelation is happening during this time, right? This is what, what a lot of commentators are saying. I don't have a problem with that. He just doesn't specify that, so I can't specify that. We do know that he does specify that he got the revelation. We don't even know how long the revelation took. Was this like the Lord hit send and then all of a sudden, bam, Paul got it like an email, you know, and bam, and now I'm on the scene. I mean, you know, it's nothing to say that the Lord didn't deposit that thing instantly and Paul all of a sudden knew everything he needed to know and hot off the presses go, right? Or was this Paul sit down, I need three years, all right, to dump this into you, me and you on the backside of some desert somewhere, you know, it doesn't matter, all right, from our end, the time span that God took Paul to school on, all right? So that's not something to get stuck on how long that process took for Paul to get the revelation. It's better just to understand that he got the revelation and from whom he got it. You guys with me? All right? So he says, I got this revelation, all right, and then I went and set before them, right? Uh, it literally means, this word set before in the English, it means uh, not like I went and sat down before them, but I literally went and set it before them. I laid it before them. What did you lay before them, Paul? The revelation I got, right? So, so, uh, and here's, here's where this is important, folks, because some of us say, you know what, I got a word from God, all right, but we don't go set it in front of nobody, right? You, you know, so we say, I got a word from God. I am 100% sure that I understood it exactly. Right. This is exactly what it meant. And this is exactly what I'm going to do because of the word that I got that I am so sure I got right. Right. We don't set it before anybody. So it's not field tested. It's, it's not let every truth be established out of the mouth of two or three witnesses. It's not pray with me on this thing. It's not. Hey, can you make sure that that was a revelation from God and not a revelation from anything else? Right. Right. Can you help me, you know, fact check this revelation against scripture? Can you can you can you just give me an extra set of eyes, an extra set of ears to help me discern the truth of this matter, right? Because if it's from God, it's going to stand up to scrutiny, right, right, for certain. I mean, it's, it's not it's like, oh, no, that wasn't from God, right? You, you know, but so many of us run away with our little private revelation. And I'm not saying that you didn't get it right. I'm saying it's okay. Say, there's safety, the proverb writer tells us. Is it the proverb writer or the psalmist? It's the proverb writer, all right? There's safety in the counsel of many, all right? It doesn't mean I got to email this to the whole church, but again, if I have my, my community, 
those spiritual people in my life who can help hold me accountable and I help hold them accountable and all that. So I got to have my community of people that I trust, that I see in their walk and I know that they walk it right before the Lord. You know, they're giving it a, a, a real good effort and that none of us are going to do it perfectly. But I can say that's a legit Christian right there. Right. That's all I can ever say about anybody. I can't. Nobody's walking it perfectly. But are they walking humbly before God? Uh, are they legitimate in their in their faith walk? Are they wishy-washy? Now, if they're wishy-washy, they shouldn't be in that circle of accountability with you. They're in a different circle. They're in your ministry circle. Right. I ain't got time to go into all that. We'll be all night. But there are several circles. But your circle of accountability needs to be a mature circle. Right. So make sure you got mature people in your circle that you can lay something like that. I was praying and I think God, t- you know, gave this to me. Can you pray with me? What do you think about that? You know, does that even sound like something? Right. You know, it doesn't mean you're looking for them to validate what God said, but you are looking to get some authentication within human, within humanity on that thing. All right. All right. We got to move on. Now, uh, we continue on here. So he says, I set this thing before them, though privately. So he didn't do it as public thing. All right. Uh, before those who seemed influential, this word influential, it means to be those who are highly esteemed of repute or looked up to. Uh, again, we believe that he's making reference to the apostles. All right. Right here again. He's going back to Jerusalem. All right. Who else would he be talking about? This at this revelation before he's not looking for Joe Blow, you know, to say, yeah, Paul had a boy. All right. He's looking to put this before those who are in authority uh, in a Christian uh, biblical sense. Right. Uh, you, you know, and what's he saying here? Why is he doing this, right? To set this before them, the gospel that I preached uh, or proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, it's interesting. By the time Paul gets back to Jerusalem, he's been at this, at this for like 14 years, right? He's been doing this for a long time. And now he comes to set it back, he sets it before them, right? Uh, this word running, it means to exert oneself, to strive hard, to spend one's strength in performing or attaining something, right? So he says, I put in all this work and I want to make sure that it wasn't uh, vain, to no purpose, fruitless, without effect, is what this word vain means, right? And so let's pause here for a moment to ask the question of why now, right? Well, why now, Paul? Why after 14 years does Paul go before them, right? Answer. Because the situation demanded it. The situation demanded it. This moment, folks, was what I will call a split the church moment, right? And God despises disunity, which means we should too. And so Paul made this journey because of the seriousness of this moment. Now, what does this raise for us in our day and age? It raises the issue of denominationalism. All right. Uh, the question has been asked to me, to me personally, as to why are there so many different denominations in the Christian faith? Anybody ever asked that question? Anybody ever had that question asked for? You, you know, uh, why, why are there so many different denominations? The answer, quite simply and regrettably, is this, that we fail to do what Paul did here. All right. Fail to do what the Jerusalem Council did in Acts 15, as you read about it. Right. Which is where this is all played out. We we in the modern era. All right. When I say modern, I mean going all the way back to just after the Protestant Reformation. All right. We have failed to consistently employ this methodology where we come together to handle tough issues uh, and just get together and pray our way through that. Search the scriptures and, and and decide on 
what are the main and plain things that we must agree on and what are the things that we cannot agree on but we don't have to split up over, right? This, we have not done this in, in the modern church era. Now, again, I call it the split the church moment because that's what it was. You had a segment of believers who held that Christianity should include circumcision and another one that held that it, that it didn't, that it doesn't, right? Neither side could be convinced. This might seem trite by modern standards, but the real issue is one of an essential nature. The famous quote, you've heard it quoted in this church, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity, right? That, that's a, a, an aphorism or a, a wise saying variously attributed to St. Augustine of Hippo, uh, Rubertus, uh, uh, Meldinius, 15, you know, 16th, 17th century, John Wesley in the 18th century. So, so some, some heavy hitters have been using this quote. We're not real sure uh, exactly who it comes from because, I mean, Augustine said it in the, presumably in the fourth century, right? Uh, you, you know, to a number of theologians in between them. It is often cited as Christians attempt to reach consensus regarding their core theological and ethical convictions and how they will live them out in church and society. The quote is full of wise counsel. I just want to do you well, that you do well to remember. And yet the quote begs two very important questions, which we are going to dive into right about now. Question number one, what are the essentials? If I ask you guys, uh, how many of you know the essential elements of Christianity. How many like you feel like you know? This is not to embarrass anybody. It's just to see. All right? Just a few of you, right? Uh, how many of you think you know at least some of them? Now, when I say some of them, that begs another question. How many are there? Right? How, how many essentials are there? Right? You, you know? Uh, we're going to put a resource in your hand in a minute. So the first question, what are the essentials? The second question, who determines what they are? Right. The answer to the second one is simple. I'll give you that one for free. The Bible. The Bible determines uh, what, what they are. Right. What about that first question, though? What are the essentials of the faith and what makes them essential? All right. I'm going to pass out a resource to you. Just take one pass one. Um, this is a list that I've put together several years ago. Oh, shoot. Probably decades now. But. Uh, here. Just take All right. Uh, and on this list are what I believe to be the 10 essential doctrines of the faith, right? Now, you may ask the question, what does essential mean? It's a good question, because you might be thinking it just means very important, right? Uh, I'm using it beyond the scope of that uh, distinction. When I say essential, I'm defining it as uh, necessary for the faith. So in other words, my argument is that these 10 define what it means to be a Christian, and if you don't hold to these 10, then your Christianity begins to fall apart at the seams, and it may not be Christian at all, right, is the argument that I'm making. Now, uh, let me say that that's a bold statement. I say that these are my convictions, all right? Uh, you know, uh, if you look on websites of various churches and various institutions, you will see uh, a lot of uniformity with respect to these these 10. I give you guys some scripture references uh, to them as well. So you can go home and check them out for yourself. All right. Which is what I would uh, put for you to do. All right. Now, the essential question 
in question is number six in terms of what Paul is dealing with in the text, right? Paul is dealing with essential question number six. Essential question number six, or should I say essential statement, number six deals with salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Along come these guys and say, no, no, it's Jesus plus circumcision. All right, so we got the Jesus plus circumcision crowd. We got... I hate to say this because I don't want y'all to be confused, but the Jesus only, you, you, you know, crowd. I'm not, I'm not saying Jesus only in the contemporary. You see churches that say Jesus only. I'm saying only Jesus. Let me just say that, all right? So you just pass the friends, Jesus only. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying in the context of this, uh, all right? <laughs> all right? Yeah, am I digging myself in too deep right now? I'm good, okay. What? Okay. <laughs> right, right, right. So uh, that's the one that Paul is dealing with. All right. I give this guys to you as a resource for your own Christian growth and development. And so that you will at least uh, be aware. Now, uh, I will say just a, a two, a one minute on this. There is this uh, thing in theology called the pale of orthodoxy. All right. Uh, now, whether that's P-A-I-L or P-A-L-E, is it P-A-L-E? All right. You, you know, but I think in my mind, I appeal. All right. And inside the pale, you are safe. The pale of orthodoxy has every orthodox belief, both primary and secondary, uh, in it. And as long as you're in the pale, you're okay. But as soon as you're out the pale, you're no longer orthodox. All right. Or, you know, orthodox means right. Right. So we have right beliefs and right actions. And so when we talk about theology in the pale of orthodoxy is the entire theological realm of stuff that Christians throughout the ages have agreed and disagreed on. But all say we, we are still Christian. We're still within the bounds of scripture as long as we stay in the pale. All right. And so uh, these are all in the pale. Now you have Christians there's who, who, you know, I would venture to say eight out of ten of these are without dispute across all of Christianity, all the way back to the apostles, right? A couple of them are in dispute, but not in dispute as to whether they are legitimate or illegitimate. It's whether they are essential or secondary. So that's the debate. Nobody's saying they're not biblical. All of these are 100% biblical. It's whether they are essential or secondary, right? I make the argument that these are, are, are essential uh, and that w- w- if you, because they're like dominoes. As soon as you snatch one away, the other one starts falling, is, is my argument. Now, that's all I can say about it. For all the other questions, email Meg at, um, <laughs> uh, email us at gotbiblequestions at detroitchurch.com is what you want to email uh, us to. And, and so, again, uh, Paul is at, is at this split the church moment, and so as not to have the first church in Jerusalem and the new first church in Antioch, because you know we got first Baptist and second Baptist and this church and the new this church. You, you, you know, that's how we come up with all these nice names and say slightly better or more elevated than that other one, second iteration or whatever, right? So in order not to have that, Paul says, no, let's go back and, and let's, let's chop this up. Here's what, I've been, here's what I've been preaching for the last 14 years, guys. What, what do you say about it, right? This, this is what he lays before them. It, I've been preaching this in this Gentile world. This is what I've been telling them. What say you on the matter? So literally, he sets it before them, but he's also submissive, 
All right. He submits it to him. He's not coming, kicking the door in. This is what I've been teaching. I don't really care what y'all think about it because that's how I roll. You, you know, if you don't like it, I'll go back to Rome or other parts. I'll go back up north. You know, I'll go back down north. All right. It would be an accurate statement uh, from Paul. And I'll just go back to my corner over here and keep preaching my brand of the gospel. You stay with the Jews and do your brand of the gospel and we all good. That's not that's not what Paul does. All right. Because that would be a disunifying force. Right. The enemy would exploit that. Right. And so this is what's going on uh, here. Are you guys with me? OK. Now, um, Paul skips to the end of the story. And I notice what he says in verse three here. But even Titus, who was with me, Titus is Greek, who was was not forced to be circumcised. Right. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom, that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. All right. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Verses four and five are one verse. All right. Uh, verse three, right quick. We'll talk a little bit about that. It says Titus, who was with me, was not forced. And this word forced, it means to necessitate, to compel, to drive, to a constraint, whether by force, threats, etc., or by persuasion, entreaties, etc. And so he says they didn't use a carrot and they didn't use a stick. Right? That, that's what we see here, right? He, they, they didn't uh, threaten him to get circumcised. They didn't try to bribe him to get circumcised. They didn't promise you a seat on the deacon board if, if, you, if you get circumcised, right? They, they made no promises, no uh, compulsion whatsoever, right? Uh, I think we're all clear on what it means to be circumcised in an anatomical sense, are we not? All right, great, great, all right. Uh, I have a definition here if you want me to read it, but I figured y'all might be okay, all right? Now, uh, what do you say? We're not sure he does. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he gonna be our ask your father. Uh, now, you come to him, talk to me. Uh, it's, it's just a cutting off of the foreskin. That's, that's all it is. We'll move on, all right? It says here that Titus was, was Greek, right? So in a wider sense, the name embraces all nations not Jews, that made the language, customs, and learning of the Greeks their own. And so uh, whether he is actually from Greece or whether he is just Hellenized, which is the word that would describe the, 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 the culture, the dominant culture in that region, right, would have been so uh, shaped by Greek culture. And so everybody spoke Greek which is why your Bible is written in what's called Koine Greek or common Greek, all right? Uh, you know, because that was the dominant language, all right? Across several countries, right? Not just one country, so it's not just a Greece thing, right? And so uh, I'm not 100% sure whether he, whether Titus is Greek in origin or just Grecian in culture, but from someplace else. He may be Syrian, all right. I don't know. I don't know that. I don't remember off the top of my head where Paul met Titus. Right. That's something we can look up uh, and see. Look at it. Do some homework uh, for me. Find out where Paul met Titus. That'll probably tell you what nationality he is. Right. We go on to verse four. And I know somebody has been waiting for me to get to verse four. Right. It was going to be trouble in paradise if we didn't get verse four. Right. He says, yet because of false brothers. Right. Secretly brought in, slipped in, inspired our freedom. Who are these false brothers? The word uh, in the Greek, it, uh, it means it says pseudodelphos. 
right? Adelphos means brother, Sude, or Suda, all right? Pseudonym, all the, you know, we still use that word in English, right? Uh, so so it, it literally means false brother, but what it means is one who ostentatiously professes to be a Christian, but is destitute of Christian knowledge and piety, right? So, so we got a fake Christian, right? Now, that could describe probably, I won't even say a number, a sizable percentage of people who are members of various churches in our world. You can be a fake Christian and know it. You can be a fake Christian and not know it, right? You can be a false brother, right? Because we can delude ourselves into thinking, I'm saved. How do you know you're saved? I got baptized when I, was, when I was three, okay? Is that enough to make you saved? Or is that enough to make you a church member, right? right? I mean, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe it makes you a church member. It doesn't necessarily make you saved, right? You, you, know, uh, you know, I know the Ten Commandments. I read my Bible. I joined the choir. I went to Bible study three times. You, you know, I give. I mean, we do the dance, right? I do all this Christian stuff, right, that says uh, I'm part of the group, you know, because I do all this stuff. I'm, I'm in, right? But yet Jesus comes along and says, uh, many going to say unto me, Lord, Lord, didn't I? And then you fill in the blanks, right? Didn't I do this? I'm pretty, you know, go back and look at it. It's Matthew, I forget, right, right? Uh, find that for me, Matthew something, right? Um, you, you know, and he says, didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't I do many wonderful works in your name, right? He says, yeah, now it's funny. Jesus doesn't dispute what they did in the text, Right? He doesn't say, nah, you lying, you ain't do none of that. Right? What he says is, I don't know you. Right? So I'm not, I'm not here to deny that you were a member of the usher board, the deacon board, you president of the choir, you gave, you, huh? Matthew chapter 7? Matthew chapter 7. Thank you, bro. So he's not disputing the resume. He's disputing the relationship. And so clearly we can have the resume without the relationship which would make us, by definition, a false brother or a false sister, right? You know, now, the fruit is going to fall off the tree at some point in time. So all you got to do is hang with a person long enough. However, let us not become detectives because the uh, 11 apostles had no clue that Judas was among them, was a false brother, and he was with them night and day for three years. So apparently looking at somebody up close is not necessarily enough to know definitively because man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart, right? And, and so our mission, don't accept it, is not to go out and find the false brothers and sisters and identify them, all right? That would be invasion of the body snatchers for those of you who are movie buffs, right? <laughs> they look human, right? But then when they talk, strange noises come out, and then that's the way you know, Right? So, awfully hard to tell the difference between a carnal Christian and a false brother. Right? Awfully hard to do that. In fact, I argue from our vantage point, it's impossible. Right? It's impossible. The Lord will split the sheep and the goats up when he gets ready in his time. That is not our mission. Right? Our mission is to help to make sure that people have a sense of where they stand before God by preaching the gospel, preaching the word correctly so that we can see the word with clarity and the Holy Spirit can do his thing of reflecting that back at us so we can see ourselves. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, to show us where we are. Because I've seen a number of people get saved and they've been members of the church for 20 years, right? 
it's an amazing feeling. It's weird. Because if you haven't had the experience of seeing deacon so-and-so come down and give his life to the Lord, you almost don't know what to do with that. Because you feel like he's been fooling us all this time. But you're happy that he's no longer a sinner. But he's been fooling us all this time. So you don't know how, you know, from our standpoint, we get, we get all kind of twisted up emotionally when a false brother is revealed for the good. And then we get even more twisted up emotionally when a false brother is revealed for the bad. Can you believe Pastor so-and-so stole $250,000 from the church and then ran off to Bermuda? You, you know, and then we fold our arms and we all like that, like, you know. But think about, think about the church in our day and age. What are we saying? Now, again, I'm not making no claims of anybody's salvation. That's beyond my purview. I'm simply saying we got a lot of people who have served in Christian circles doing a lot of unchristian stuff that has now come to the light, right? And maybe they're false brothers and false sisters. Maybe they're just carnal. Either way, our response should be pray for them, right? Don't spend all your time being mad, angry, been out of shape. Just pray for them because that's all you can do. You can't save nobody. I can't either. But the Lord still saves. You guys with me? All right. So he says these false brothers who were secretly brought in. All right. Uh, now, I got to admit, when I read this, I had to read it in a couple different translations because I'm like, did somebody ship them in or did they slide in? Right. You, you, you know, and I had to I had to. So uh, some translations say slipped in. All right. The Greek says to creep or steal in. So this is not that somebody imported in some some false brothers, right? You you know, it's that they stole in. It's like to um, to stow away aboard a ship, right? Uh, you know, uh, and so uh, to to secretly means to surreptitiously one who has stolen in, right? To come in by stealth, right? Why did they come in by stealth? To spy out, it says. What's that mean? To inspect, to view closely, which does which is not a bad thing. You should have a life that is. Uh, able to be scrutinized up close, but it's the motivation that they did that with, right? The motivation is revealed in the definition to inspect or view closely in order to spy out and plot against, right? And, and so this was their mission. I need to see how they do, how they work, so I can find the weak links in the chain so I can exploit it, right? And, and, and run my agenda, right? Whatever my nefarious agenda is. What is a nefarious agenda? He tells us what the nefarious agenda is so that they might bring us into slavery. What were they looking at, though? Were they just looking at choir rehearsal? Were they looking at Bible study? No, he says they looked at our freedom, all right? They looked at our freedom. What is freedom? The liberty to do or to omit things having no relation to salvation, Right here in specific reference to elements of the Mosaic law. And so maybe they spied in to see, are they, is anybody eating bacon up in here? Did they have ribs at the church picnic? <laughs> right, right. It's, it's, I believe it includes circumcision, but it could include any other elements of the Mosaic law. Is there anybody with cotton poly? That's a blend up here. Let me see some, some labels, right? You know, because the law had all kind of weird things in it. Weird from our standpoint. Right, right. You, you know, uh, you know. Anybody with other dietary? Are they eating shrimp up in here anywhere? Right. You know, was the crab legs at the church picnic? Right. You know, because everything I just named was unclean, from mixed fabrics to you know crawling creatures on the seabed. Right. Now, if you guys want to have a church picnic with ribs and shrimp and crab legs, please invite me. 
and, and I will wear a cotton polyester blend, right? You, you know, we'll have a great old time, right? Uh, so, so all these things are in the realm of freedom for the New Testament believer, not in the realm of freedom for the Old Testament believer. So they came in to see what they were doing, how they were doing it, to take a look at this freedom thing. Right. But not just to see like, oh, ah, wow, Lord, that's how you rolling now. Can I get down with that? No, no. To they, they want to see it so they can figure out how to break it. How can I see the new machine and where, where can I throw my monkey wrench in to break this thing down and drag these people back to slavery is what it says here. All right. He said to bring us into slavery. What is this? That word, by the way, bring into slavery, three words in English, one word in the Greek. And it literally means to bring into bondage or to enslave. Right. So let, let's pause here for just a brief moment. Remember in the first week where I told you guys about the middle voice in Greek? All right. If you weren't with us, uh, English has an active and a passive. The, the Greek has a middle voice. All right. Paul used that in, in uh, early in chapter one to talk about these people literally not being kidnapped and drug away, but these people taking themselves away into bondage, right? Uh, so, so hence Paul's indictment, not call the police, save the people they got kidnapped, but, but Lord, you know, guys, how could you, after you've been exposed to the truth of the gospel, how could you take yourself back into that, right? That's, that's the middle voice, right? So uh, that, that was there early in chapter one. Right back in verse six in chapter one, where they deserted the teaching of Paul in reference to the true gospel. Here we see the active voice of those with an agenda trying to impose their standards on the Gentile believers. Right. This is what they're trying to do. They're trying to subjugate the new Gentile believers. Right. They want to bring them into bondage to the elements of the law that don't have anything to do with salvation, right? Now, you know, to keep that thought in mind, let's finish verse five and then we're gonna pause for some questions. All right, we might close for some questions. Verse five, he says, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. The, to yield literally means just like we yielding at this, 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 the yield sign to give place, Right. To, su to submit would be to to obey. All right? We did not yield. We didn't give place and obey them. Not for a moment, not an hour, not a season, not any not any piece of time whatsoever. Right. This, this is what he says. Why didn't you yield even for a moment? Right. It's like a filibuster. If we think about uh, our, our political scene. You never yield the floor. Right. You, you, you know, uh, to, to let them get this stuff in. Right. So we we don't yield. Right. Uh so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you, he says, right? This word truth, all right, uh, it literally means the truth, right? As taught in the Christian religion, respecting God and the execution of his purposes through Christ and respecting the duties of man, opposed alike to the superstitions of the Gentiles and the inventions of the Jews. So truth doesn't pick sides. Truth is truth. You get on truth's side. Truth don't get on your side. All right. This is this is what he's saying here. Right. Uh, you know, all the corrupt opinions of, and false precepts of false teachers, even among Christians. So truth opposes everybody but itself. Right. So it's our job to get in line with truth. Right. He says so that truth. 
Now notice, again, let me make sure I stay here because we live in an age that believes that truth is that, that truth is a commodity. I got my truth and you got your truth. Right? You, you know, truth is not a commodity. You know, uh, truth is an entity. Right? First of all, truth is a person. Right? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth. Right? The life. So, you know. Uh, so, so, truth is an objective standard reality set by God. Right? And so, it is not my truth and your truth. Please, as Christians, never find yourself saying, that's my truth. Right? Because that puts you in a realm of reality called relativism. Right? Right? And relativism means your feet are firmly planted in midair. Right? Right? You, you know, which means you have no stability whatsoever. All right? These lights can't be on and off at the same time. It's called that's mutually exclusive. Right? They're either on or they're off. Ain't no halfway point. Right? You, you, you know, and so that, that is the nature of truth. Right? You either have it or you don't have it. You can't have some of it. Right? You have it or you don't have it, right? Uh, and, and you don't have your own private truth, right? It, it, you know, it's, it's not. It, you know, that's, that's not the nature of truth, right? And so Paul is saying, I'm fighting. I'm not yielding. I'm not submitting for one minute. Why? So that the truth might be preserved. The word preserved here means to stay permanently, to remain permanently, to continue, right? And, so, and this is what we're still fighting for, saints, right? Truth is always under attack, it's been under attack since Jesus left. It's going to be under attack after you and I leave, right? Because that, that's what the enemy's got to do. He's been attacking truth since the garden, have God said. He was attacking the truth right there. What did God say? Don't do this, right? No, what did God say? Don't do that. That's He was attacking the truth. Now, let's pause. Let's stop. What questions do you have? Anything I said, anything, any thoughts you want to share that now is the time? I mean, I gladly go on, but, you know, I want to make sure. Oh, okay. I'm like, where that light coming from? <laughs> Angie. You yes. You mentioned a couple verses, and you did one too fast. All right. When you were listing... Verses where oaths. Oh, back to, okay, and the oaths, okay, back in chapter one. Genesis 21, 24, Hebrews 6, 13, and it was Matthew 26. Uh, Yeah, when Jesus did it. Uh, Let's see here. Mm. All right, all right. So, uh, Genesis 21, 24, Deuteronomy 6, 13, Hebrews 6, 13. Uh, Matthew 2663. 2663. And Pale, P A L E. Okay. From um, Paleo. Okay. All right. Pale. Okay. Thank you. Appreciate that. All right. Anybody else? Anybody else? Because I know how to use my last eight minutes if y'all don't want to use it. All right, all right, all right, huh? all right. Praise the Lord. Watch out. We might mess around and finish the section. Probably not, but hey, we're going to give it a shot. All right. So we go on into verse 6 then. All right. Um, he says, and from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. Sounds cocky, but it's not. God shows no partiality, which is why he says that. 
Those, I say, who seem influential added nothing to me. This is actually a restatement of what he said earlier in some ways with a slight, uh, with a little bit of extra nuance, right? The, the influential here speaks of those who are reputed to be uh, of somewhat of importance, to have influence. Again, I said commentators, and I believe it too, uh, think we're talking about the apostles, all right, we're not talking about Joe Blow, uh, you, you know, Jane Blow in, in the church right here. We're talking about, uh, I believe we're talking about the apostles. He goes on to say what they were, in other words, their position makes no difference, right? And that's literally what that means. It makes a difference. Uh, it's so important. So in this case, it makes no difference. It's not, it doesn't matter. It's not of importance to me. Why, Paul? Why is it unimportant to you? Because I know where I come from, Right? I know I met Jesus on the road to Damascus, all right? That Jesus took me to school some, some period of time, you know, before I went on these missionary journeys. He's been with me the entire way, right? So I don't need convincing or validating because I got my own uh, experience with the Lord, right? And it's been a public experience because I just told you about 14 years of my life, right? Going through, you know, shipwrecks and, and, and beatings and, and riots and, and imprisonments and all that kind of stuff that you guys are going to read about in Acts chapters 13, 14, and 15 for homework this week, right? Uh, he says, uh, God shows no partiality, right? And so God does not regard anyone's power, rank, or external circumstances, and on that account to do some injustice, do, do anything special for them on account of their external trappings, right? That's not how God works. All right. There's this, uh, this, he doesn't show any partiality, not even to those, I say, who seem influential. Right. These individuals added nothing to me, added to add from one's store. This is interesting, this word added. Right. Because Paul is not saying that they didn't give me anything. He's saying that they had nothing to give me. Right. Because the adding would have to, they would have to have something to give me. And what is it that we have to give anybody, right, in a spiritual context, right? You, you know, I can't call anybody to do anything. I can't save anybody. I can't be anybody's Holy Spirit. So in, in essence, there's nothing in my limited humanity that I can do to, to add to who you are in a spiritual sense. Now, once you get saved, I can be used by the Holy Spirit as I exercise my gifts and obedience to him, and he, he edifies you, not me edify you, right? And so even in this exercise, you may say, hey, Pastor, we did a great job, really learned a lot uh, from you, praise God. But I had to learn a lot from, from somebody else, and all I am really, I don't have my UPS shirt on, but I'm taking a package that I got, all right, unpacked, repackaged, you know, and now I'm delivering that package to you, and hopefully you can, got, you can open the package and read the package and understand the package. So hopefully, you know, you might mess around and learn something from the package. And then you can repackage the package and take it to somebody else and give them the package. Right? But where'd the package start at? Right? So it didn't start with me. Right? It won't end with me. If I should drop dead right now, there'll be the package giver will give the package to somebody else. You, you know, and, and, and it goes on and on and on. Right? And so, pause and not. They didn't add anything. Uh, to me, and it's not a pejorative statement. He's not denigrating the apostles. He's not taking shots. This is not throwing shade, right? He's simply making a statement of fact about who he is, how he came to be. They didn't have anything whatsoever to do with it. They didn't vote him in. They, 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 didn't, they didn't take him to school. 
All right. They literally added nothing uh, to his ministry. Right. You guys with me? All right. He goes into verse seven. On the contrary, he says, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel of the, to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Oh, well, I want to stop, I'll stop there right quick. So, you, you know, it, it's interesting. It's a couple of key words in here that tell us the disposition of the apostles, right? We see that they saw and they perceived, right? So, so they recognized, and that's all we ever really want from those who labor with us is to see if they see something of the handiwork of God on us, right? Uh, you know, when you get called into ministry, all right, that's a, that's a private call between you and God, but it's not so private that when you announce it, we're all saying, huh? <laughs> right? Because there's a public element to any call to ministry, right, that says we see what God's been doing in you. We see God's hand on you uh, for this thing. So once you acknowledge a call to ministry, and I don't mean just public ministry where you're going to be minister, deacon, so-and-so, but whatever you see or sense God compelling you or gifting you to do, once you make that announcement, there should be somebody's in your life that says, man, I've been... I, I've been thinking about that for you for a long time. You should, what took you so long? Right? I've been seeing that in you forever. Right? What, what took you so long? So you got the, the private you and God moment. You got the public moment. And hopefully you have a moment that's attested to by scripture. You got some burden in your heart, some fire that God has placed there that if you don't do it, you're not going to be right if you don't do it. Right. And this is what we see. Right. That the apostles are recognizing in Paul and Barnabas. We see that you got this ministry to the I got one minute on my watch. I don't care what y'all say. Uh, <laughs> right. Well, no, I, I think I have. Do I have one minute on my watch? I don't have one minute. On, oh, darn it. My phone say nine thirty, eight thirty. All right. We're going to wrap it up uh, right here. Verse 10 says, remember the poor. Right. And that's exactly what they tell Paul to do. He says, I was eager uh, to do it. I was planning on working hard in that area as well. Well, saints, that wraps us up for tonight. I'm trying to get an A uh, and be uh, the, the, the administrative aspects of this by letting y'all out on time. So we're going to close in a quick word of prayer. I'll be here if you got any questions afterwards. Uh, but I hope you got something tonight, uh, you, you know, and you got your questions answered. If not, don't forget, got Bible questions at Detroit Church. Dot com. Uh, shoot those to us and we'll try and get them back to you. Let's pray. Father God, we bless your name. We thank you, O oh Lord, for just the time in your word on tonight. We thank you for all that you have poured into us, uh, Lord. Uh, I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would be the after teacher, Lord, that you would bring to each one's remembrance those things they need to know, to be, and to do. Now, Lord, we ask that you would guide us from here safely on to our next destination. And if you should decide to tarry for a week longer, Jesus, then bring us back together again that we might once more search the scriptures to see if those things are so. Do bless us and keep us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.